Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace-King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess. Right now, orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi, and I'm here with Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He is a speaker, data scientist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Everybody Lies, and Don't Trust Your Gut, two books that could easily be all about poker. The most recent title, released in May this year, is subtitled Using Data to Get What You Really Want in Life. Seth is also a friend of mine, though we have not yet met on the poker table. What hand is your most memorable hand from your poker experience? Because I know you've played, so you've played in Philadelphia, you've played some home games in New York City, you played in the Hamptons. This is a tough question. I'm not, do like amateur poker players remember hands in great detail eight months later? I feel like I've forgotten most of my hands. I think the main thing I take from my poker experience is that it goes to don't trust your gut. I always expect that my bluffs will never work. I just do not believe like anytime I'm thinking of bluffing, I'm like, there's no way I can do this because they're going to figure me out and they're going to call my bluff. And I have to just overrule that every time. So probably my most memorable hand is just a time where I just, there's no way this person is going to fold if I bluff and I just force myself to do it. And then it works. It probably works a really high percent of the time with me because I like never do it. I do it way too little. Like times I one hands with really garbage by just bluffing you under bluff you under that, oh yeah like... for sure i think it's just a general approach to life is that i uh i'm very pessimistic i, I think i under bluff and i probably i would say maybe i fold too often because i think like even if i have the if the odds are you know like i have a flush draw i'm like well come on the flush isn't going to actually come uh so i just fold. i'm too pessimistic on it kind of everything but I feel like those things are so insightful because first of all, in a lot of games with amateur players, it's really difficult to bluff because they want to see what you have. And sometimes the stakes aren't that relevant to their like overall income. They're not like playing for a living. So it's like normally a really good strategy to under bluff. Just never bluff. Yeah. In games where people overcall, you have to under bluff. So like every adjustment has like a counter adjustment. And then I think the other part is kind of interesting that when your chances are less than 50%, it's kind of like, you feeling like they're closer to zero than they actually are, which I think I, is a pretty common fallacy as well. Interesting. Yeah. The other thing is poker, like initially a big problem that poker players ran into, and I run into this as well, 
is just putting someone on a particular hand instead of a range of hands, right? So always putting probability on every possible hand is really important. I, I run into that problem a lot too. I say, you know, that person has aces or that person hit the flush and it should always be, everything should be probabilistic. Even if it's a 90% chance they hit the flush, it's never a hundred, nothing's a hundred percent. If nothing else, they could just have misread their hand or something. That's another thing I've kind of learned over the years is to put people on ranges rather than, and try to do that quick math in their head of what, but this is all amateur stuff. I'm, I'm not a real poker player. Although we've probably talked about this. My brother was a professional poker player for a while. Yes, I did know that. Noah, right? He was also a, a journalist, right? Yeah, he started a website, Subject Poker, uh, where he was covering the, doing journalism around poker. But he got really bored of poker and now he's a computer scientist. Well, he definitely taught you some interesting things because you talk about poker like um, somebody who's really kind of been around the game. And maybe that's also because a lot of the work that you do in data science, there's like some overlap in that and poker. Like, for instance, one of the things that really struck me about your book is you have a, a couple sections where you talk about luck. Yeah. And you apply it to so many different fields, business, dating, art, you know, artistic production, music. And you talk about how there's this cliche that like so much of your success in life is about how lucky you get and how some of the data shows that that's actually not as true as people think. Yeah. I mean, I guess a poker player would really appreciate that because it's kind of a similar point that so in business or in art or whatever, if you describe or in life, you describe your biggest wins, they're probably going to have a fair amount of luck in them. But I think what people forget is that you're supposed to have a fair amount of luck in your life. And poker players kind of realize that more than other people, that if you never got a lucky break, you'd be the most unlucky person in human history. In poker, if you never hit your flush, uh, if you never hit your outs, you'd be the most unlucky person in history. That wouldn't happen. You're supposed to hit it, uh, hit some outs, uh, some flushes over a course of uh, a year, uh, a decade, whatever. So uh, th there have been these studies, for example, when they look at successful businesses versus less successful businesses. It's not clear that the more successful businesses really had more luck opportunities. It's more that they took advantage of the luck they had. And then I think another thing a poker player would certainly appreciate is that you can do things to increase your chances of getting lucky. In art, there are all these studies that one of the biggest predictor of artistic success is just having produced and released a lot of work. And a lot of artists, when they release a piece of art, they can't predict whether or not it's going to be successful. Uh, there are all these examples. Beethoven, I think eight of his masterpieces he thought were crap. Uh, and then the world said they're masterpieces. And I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I was shocked to learn that Born to Run, that one, probably his greatest album, uh, before he released it, he thought it was garbage and didn't want to release it. Uh, and had to be like convinced by his manager to release the album. And then the world's like, this is amazing. A lot of artists don't do that. And they get stuck in their head and they spend 10 more years polishing something and they don't kind of allow the world to uh, appreciate their art, give them their lucky breaks. It's a little different in, in poker because you can't just play every hand. Uh, the equivalent of poker would be, I guess, playing every hand, uh, but you can't really do that because you lose a lot of money. Getting lucky in poker is a little different. Taking uh, every shot isn't really a good poker strategy, but in many other areas of life, it just is a good strategy. Dating's another one. Yeah, definitely. I want to get to dating in a minute, but first, like the corollary to poker, I think is a little dangerous because obviously there's some people who have a predilection for gambling and they should definitely stay away from poker because even though it can be approached as a strategy game, that's certainly how I do it and how 
I think most of my listeners of this uh, nerdy chess inspired poker podcast take it. But if you do are just like excited to see like, you know, whether you can hit your ace, it might not be the game for you unless you're kind of combining that with the love of math. But I, I do think that in poker, there's a great corollary in that you have to give yourself a lot of chances to succeed in fields that you're um, beating. So you're a good player and you're giving yourself a lot of chances to succeed. You will have a much, much bigger chance of getting lucky. The other cool thing that I really liked about what you wrote is that getting lucky um, right after you already got lucky is extremely important. Like in poker, it's way more important to win like five flips in a row than to win like, you know, the first slip of every tournament, right? Because once you win the fifth, it means you're like in the, the, like the very highest percentile of the tournament and you could win like 100x your buy-in or win a WSOP bracelet. So sometimes I think that's underlooked because there's a lot of talk and I think like these self-help books and productivity books about like persevering through failure, but like really pushing once you get lucky, I think is something that is undervalued. Some of the examples in business is once you have that big opportunity, kind of taking advantage of it, uh, which a lot of businesses, they don't do it. They miss their big opportunity. They have an early run and then they kind of don't capitalize it and allow kind of compounding effects. It is interesting, the similarities across different fields, but I think there are noticeable differences. A big thing is whether you're punished for failure. So in poker, you are punished for failure. There are a lot of domains where you're not really punished so much for failure. So being rejected from a job or being rejected from a romantic partner, uh, you're not really punished for failure. So then it really does make sense to just play every hand, basically, uh, never fold. Obviously, that's not a successful poker strategy. Right. I mean, that would be more like if you have a really large bankroll, just trying to play, or you're you're practicing what we call good bankroll management, playing a lot of tournaments, not playing every hand within the tournaments. Right. Yeah, of course, you're just burning money there. You know plenty of poker to know that. You also related this to the numbers game of dating. Yeah, there, there are these studies from dating sites. They rank people in different ways. It's a little dark. The whole stu- study data of dating it gets a little dark because It shows how superficial people are and how predictable we are looking for these traits like beauty and height and certain occupations and certain names. They've done these studies of kind of what happens when the least desirable people on a dating site ask the most desirable people on a dating site out. And uh, they measure desirability different ways. And the odds tend to be around 14% of hearing back for for a man, uh, a heterosexual man asking a woman out. It's, It's even higher for a heterosexual woman asking a man out which is a lot higher than I would have guessed. I don't like talking ones versus tens because it's a little, it's a, it's a, it feels a little superficial, judgmental, but you kind of think of people who are less conventionally gorgeous, have fewer of the traits that are highly competed over in online dating. When they ask people that are at the very top of the market or they, they message people at the very top of the market, they hear back with a decent percent of the time. And if you do the math, if you have a 14% chance of hearing back, if you send messages to 30 people, then you have more than a 98% chance of hearing back from one. So it does show the power of numbers game in dating, which I think is underappreciated. Uh, it was definitely underappreciated by me in my single days. Just the pure strategy of asking everybody out who you're attracted to, uh, I think is massively underrated in dating uh, and allows you to get kind of, it's, it, I put in the luck chapter because it, there is a, a little bit of luck for somebody you're attracted to being attracted to you as well. Uh, but if you ask everybody you're attracted to out, uh, you have a much higher chance of getting lucky. 
And maybe part of the reason that's so counterintuitive to people is because the social mores, like you wouldn't do that like out on the street because you know, that would be invading somebody's face. But if like it's in a actual dating site, like they do want to be asked out. So you're not, you're not really violating any like social compact there. Yeah. And I think if you do it in a nice way, certainly I don't think there's anything unethical about anybody asking anybody out on an online dating site. People probably don't do it as often as they should. And I think a lot of people, certainly in my experience, I found out I was in my single days, I found out on a few occasions that a woman who I just never asked out because I thought there's no way uh, this was the equivalent of a 10. And I viewed myself, I went through periods in my life where I viewed myself much lower. They would have said yes. And I just couldn't get the nerve to do it. I'm happy that it worked out because now I'm, I'm in, in a great relationship. But uh, looking back on it, I'm like, you know, I, I kind of pre-rejected myself. Yeah. And I do think that has a lot in common with bluffing because you feel like such an idiot when your bluff is called, but it's like, obviously if you're never getting that feeling of being an idiot, then you're not doing it enough. It is interesting. Kind of don't trust your gut that people are, I think people are probably, I, I'd be curious your opinion on this. It's very hard for people to be in the sweet spot of these areas. So probably there's people who bluff way too much or people who bluff way too little. People who call way too much. People who call way too little, even asking out there are probably some people who take it to an inappropriate level where they are. And obviously we know beyond asking out when you get to, you know, aggressive come-ons, then that, that can be inappropriate. Uh, but then there are also people, certainly I, this was me in my single days, uh, who are not nearly aggressive enough. Getting calibrated can be a challenge and data can help you there. Oh yeah. Calibration is incredibly hard. And that's why poker, even though in some ways it, it is a relatively simple game, some parts of it are it's really hard to find somebody who's patient enough to like fold correctly, sometimes four hours at a time, for instance, when it's near the bubble and they don't have a big stack, but who's also like aggressive enough to bluff all their chips when it's the correct moment to do it. Usually you do have people who either aren't patient enough for that or who aren't um, as comfortable with taking massive risks. Finding the sweet spot is really hard, but of course it can be trained. And, you know, usually with uh, data is a good way to convince people that they need to go in a certain direction. That and like also trying to randomize and like figure out how to calibrate correctly so that you, if you're supposed to do something 30% of the time, you don't actually do it 0% or 60, that you actually try figure out a way to do it about 30%. That's so hard. I think one of the things interesting, it's, you know, this is such a different angle on my book because my book doesn't talk about poker at all, but it is interesting, the similarities and the differences of the life advice and the poker advice. And I feel like the life advice is a lot easier because it's a less competitive, there's less talent in these li life domains in many ways that poker, you're competing against all these people, uh, you know, at the highest level we're all, and it's so zero sum and they're all trying to reading the same books and reading the same studies and trying to get their calibration exactly right. Uh, you know, if you're competing in the world series of poker, but if you're competing in the dating market or even many of the domains of entrepreneurship or trying to be happier, I feel like there are these, just these huge inefficiencies that you don't really have to like, like my advice never, never is like, you have to do this. You have to randomize and you're in a game theory situation. You have to do things 60% of the time. It's always just like work a little less hard and take more hikes with friends because it makes people a lot happier. <laughs> uh, it's like, it's, it's much simpler. Cause I think in our, in our personal lives, uh, there's less there. It, it's just been studied less and we're less, uh, 
efficient and sometimes it's less competitive. So it's interesting to compare the poker versus life and how you can use data in both. I think that you're specifically right about that at the highest levels of poker. Like when you say the World Series of Poker, there's so many different events. There's events where you're spot on. It costs $50,000 and everybody who plays in the event is like studying poker for hours a day, trying to get their calibrations right in every different spot. Like they're looking at what happens if you open the button and you have this many chips and the big blind raises you preflop. And then they're looking at all of those spots. So there's like so many of them, hundreds of them. And they're like every day they might like study. This is a day to study this one, right? But then a lot of tournaments are just like $500 tournament on the weekend where, you know, thousands of people are just like trying to use their combination of math and guts to, you know, win a bracelet. And there, I think actually there would be a corollary to your general advice. I was in Vegas a couple months ago. And I was playing at Mandalay Bay, $1, $2 tables. And there the best advice, which I followed, seems to be don't get drunk and wait until you have a good hand and play it and take a lot of money. I made you know a few hundred bucks uh, just by following that uh, for over a few hours. So in our personal lives, the decision-making is more equivalent to playing the $1, $2 tables at a Vegas hotel than playing at a World Series of Poker. Just doing simple things, taking advantage of these very simple life hacks gives you a pretty huge edge. Absolutely. And I mean, even in, at the highest stakes, because these players are playing for so many hours, sometimes the simplicity is uh, really the ticket to success. Being able to be pretty consistent for 10 to 12 hours, th that we call it elevating our C game in poker so that even when you're playing like at your most terrible, you're not playing that badly. The similar advice about like going outside more, working a little bit less, hanging out with people you love, I mean, in poker, you're right. It would be like, you know, bluffing less. And when you do bluff, try to make it all in for all their chips. So they, you introduce a little bit of fear, especially in a tournament setting and, you know, betting big with your value hands, like pretty, pretty straightforward. I'd say if you're like a poker amateur, who's looking to just like be as likely to be successful as you can. I hadn't thought about this. It's an interesting, like, what are areas where you're playing at the $1, $2 tables and what are areas where you're playing at the best World Series game where you really have to be at your best. And I think met, most domains of life are the equivalent of the $1, $2 tables because it's very rare. You know, even I talk about the career stuff and I think if you're working at a quantitative hedge fund, you really do have to think through the math in very complex ways and really, you know, you're competing against the best people in the world. But most other careers, there are these simple tricks uh, I talk about in the book, successful artists, that you can increase your chance of success sixfold, seemingly, just by traveling to lots of different galleries and presenting your work in different places. And so many artists just don't do that. They put all this energy into producing their work and producing their masterpiece. And then they just present it in this tiny gallery in their town over and over again. And nobody finds them. Nobody spots them. And they just hope that someone's going to come there uh, miraculously and save them. And it never happens. And just this very, very simple trick of present your art widely, hustle, uh, get out and about, find your break, massively increases your odds of success uh, in, in art. Life feels to me more like, like that in many domains. We're just doing things that are pretty simple, pretty straightforward, massively increase your odds of success. 
Although some of it has to do with privilege and whether or not you're able to take some of the advice in your book. Like in particular, you have a section which is fascinating, of course, to me, because I have a five-year-old about parenting and how you can make um, your children more likely to be financially successful. I wanted to ask why in your book, you talk a lot about happiness, especially for adults, but for assessing good parenting skills, you were usually using income as a barometer. Um, what was the reason for that? Was there just not a lot of good data for anything else? You kind of go to war with the army you got. There's not really good data on correlating parenting success with happiness. Uh, I agree that it's a more important area, but I think some of the things that I think have very convincingly been demonstrated lead to more educated kids or more wealthy kids or kids who are less likely to get in trouble, commit crimes, I think would probably translate over to happiness, but we don't know for sure. You do mention in the book, and I, I, I mean, I know this is a very popular topic, that there is some correlation between income and happiness, which is not shocking, but that it's often lower than people think, unless they've read all of the clickbaity studies about how it's not that related. How would you sum it up? Because I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions there. Basically, there was originally an idea that once you got to $75,000, income didn't make a difference beyond that point. And I think people really loved that finding. One of the points of my book is that findings that people love, sometimes have to be a little more skeptical of, findings that make a compelling story and that are more likely to go viral, uh, they're almost less likely to be true. Even if a researcher has found them by complete chance, they'll immediately spread around the world and very quickly and people will latch on to them. And I think that's probably true with the idea that you know, money doesn't matter at all beyond a certain point, $75,000. I think a lot of people would want to uh, believe that. There is no point researchers have found at which money stops influencing happiness. There are literally been studies that people who make 10, who are worth $10 million are happier than people who are worth, say, $4 million. But the effect is pretty limited. So what it seems to do is that each doubling your income has kind of the same effect on happiness throughout the income distribution. So moving from $40,000 to $80,000 would have the same effects as maybe moving from $400,000 to $800,000 or moving from $4 million to $8 million, or you need to make more and more to get the same boost. So there are diminishing returns to money. And if you overall, even the studies that have found that people who make 10 million, who are worth $10 million are happier than people of a more modest net worth, have found that the boost from being worth $10 million is about half as large as the happiness boost from being married. So being married gives twice the happiness boost as being worth $10 million. And I think being married is a lot easier than getting a net worth of $10 million, uh, especially if you use the advice in my book of asking a lot of people out. <laughs> it's a path to happiness money, but it's a, not a, it's a difficult path. It's a challenging path and it's not a reliable path. It's not like as soon as you reach a certain point, you're guaranteed happiness or anything of the sort. It, it gets harder and harder to make more money to get a happiness boost. Uh, and the boost seems to be pretty small. But the cool thing about money for a data scientist is that there's a lot of a lot of information out there you can use to to measure that you don't necessarily have for happiness, which is often self-reported and um, sometimes self-reported in, in weird ways that would be very biased. Although you do talk a lot about some happiness reporting that you really believe in, the mappiness. Yeah, why, mappiness why is this one like particularly trustworthy? Like 
compared to just like emailing somebody and like giving them like a, how happy are you on a scale from one to 10 quiz, right? The cool thing about the Mappiness Project, uh, it's Susanna Murado and George McCarran, British economists. It may be because I'm an economist that I really love this study more than, because most of the happiness research is done by psychologists and their methods tend to be very different. There are these small lab experiments and you do this very short randomized experiment and you see how usually undergrad students respond to various interventions. And I found that approach extremely underwhelming. Uh, but the Mappiness Project was hanging people on their phones and asking them, who are you with? What are you doing? And how happy are you? And I think the major thing that there are a couple of things that are really valuable about the Mappiness Project is one, it's asking them at the moment what they're doing and how happy they are. So I think you know, looking back on it, there's a lot of evidence that we forget how happy we were, that, you know, if you ask how happy were you on your vacation three months ago, uh, there's a lot of false memories that we can be it, greatly influenced by how the vacation ended, uh, the peak moments. It's, it's very, we're very unreliable reporters of happiness from way back when. So this is in the moment. And then the sample size is just a, enormous that they could really do these very clever natural experiments. They could correct for just about everything. Uh, you know, they could do these studies. I think I, I talk about one of their studies. There's extremely compelling evidence that we're much happier in natural environments than artificial environments that particularly when we're by, say, a body of water, by a lake, uh, by an, the ocean. The study, they have 3 million happiness points. They were literally comparing the same person doing the same activity with the same people but one time they're in a lake by a lake and one time they're in a city. So for example, let's say I'm at a meeting one Friday, I'm at a work meeting with my colleagues and we're in an office building. And the next Friday we decide to do it by a lake. Uh, we're going to get this huge happiness boost if we're by the lake. In my opinion, so much more compelling, uh, these kind of big data sets, you could really do much more convincing causal inference. So uh, I thought the project was just like, orders of magnitude more impressive than the other happiness research. Although I do talk a little about other happiness research as well. I can't help but think about money when you mentioned that if you go from, you know, being in the city to being by your lake house, right? I mean, of course, the people who are able to like not only travel at the drop of the hat, but potentially have multiple residences, you would think that happiness would be even more correlated with money if people use their money to follow this research. But a lot of times that doesn't really happen, does it? That's right. There's uh, there have been also studies that stuff tends to not make people happy, which is how a lot of people spend their money. So you buy a shiny object, uh, and that's not something that makes people happy. And uh, you know, a lot of really really wealthy people tend to end up kind of isolated, living in their mansions by themselves. You know, I think one of the biggest compelling findings in happiness and other projects is how important people are for our happiness, particularly our friends and our romantic partner. That doesn't seem to be correlate with money. I guess richer people could use these findings and spend money to fly their friends on vacations or fly their friends uh, yeah, to, to the beach. It would be interesting if rich people did that, uh, if they found a boost in happiness. I wouldn't be surprised at all. It does indicate that like some, some uh, programs that try to make, um, make more equality need to focus on making sure there's like equal access to beautiful places and nature because that... Hey, hey, the data shows that helps. But I, I mentioned earlier about the parenting and how you didn't have a lot of data on happiness in children. So is that because it's like not considered ethical to use children as subjects? 
So the mappiness, you had to be like 18 plus to take part in it. Is that why we, you don't have kids? Yeah, I think that that's part of it. And part of it is just to have big enough samples. A lot of social science research is not that good and is not that convincing. We have a rep, we have a famous replication crisis that all these legendary studies don't replicate. And there's this huge incentive to just publish results when they are statistically significant or shocking. And the whole method, uh, the method just proves incredibly unreliable. And the studies in my book are just these analyses of enormous data sets, usually millions, sometimes tens of millions of people, uh, you know, everybody on a dating site, the parenting research that I found most compelling was an analysis of tax records, the tax records anonymous de-identified of the entire universe of American earners. And yeah, there's not that the equivalent for happiness. The the only the only big data studies of happiness are these mappiness experience sampling projects. Nobody's been able to track that, you know, to correlate that with what parents did many years earlier. So there's really no research in big data studies of uh, what leads to happiness, what parenting strategies lead to happy kids. And, you know, you mentioned a couple of times now about how there's a replication crisis and that flashy results and studies get a lot of attention, which could certainly exaggerate to non-scientists and the general public the effects of them. It sounds like even in the research community, it can be exaggerated. So you can imagine people who are reading like, you know, the newspaper article um, translation of these studies, like, wow. And that, that actually reminds me a lot of poker as well. I think there's a corollary there that sometimes um, in poker, especially for tournament players, you just see their biggest successes. In fact, there's a website called the Hendon Mob, which just gives you all of the different um, financial victories that people have, but they don't show you any of the um, losses. So of course, you know, you're not going to get a really realistic picture of whether somebody is winning or not, or how much, if you only look at the flashy results. That's interesting. And I'm sure there's a huge, yeah, then you get a huge bias. If you try to learn from this, the lessons would be to copy the people who had the biggest wins, but they may have just been in the most tournaments or you know, also had the biggest losses and it may not be a strategy. Maybe you want to copy the grinders who aren't winning as much in their major wins. Yeah, it's interesting. Much like in life as well. It also has a lot to do with how much money you started with, right? Like if you, you know, come for money and you um, aren't afraid of losing all your money and getting to zero, obviously your strategy is going to be like way different than somebody who's a first generation college student, right? Um, who has college loans. That is also like a, a bias in poker that is like very hard to untangle because generally people like to hide that data because everybody wants to be seen as successful as possible in their own merits. Who's the best poker player in the world these days? I, I used to follow this somewhat. When my brother was playing, I like knew all the poker players and I'd watch all the poker shows on TV, Poker After Dark and World Poker Tour and the ESPN the world, and then the World Series. But now I'm like out of the loop. It was, I think when I was following it, it was Dwan. Tom Dwan. He kind of seemed to pass the Phil Ivey period, the Dwan period. I don't know, but I, don't, I haven't followed it the last few years. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, Phil Ivey and Tom Dwan are still up there and considered some of the greatest. And part of it is because the opportunity was so high during those boom years. Yeah. That from a combination of like sponsorships and just like incredible opportunities because they were so good at a time when people were just learning, um, allowed them like the first in advantage to really amass like not only huge funds, but also huge reputations. Yeah. Or a little more difficult to approximate in a time where poker is not as booming. Now, of course, there are still some incredible players who've come up in like the last five to 10 years, but 
the old legends of the past, like Ivy and Dwan are still, I think, doing incredibly well. Although it's always really hard to tell exactly how much money people have. Like, I, I don't know if you read the news, but there was like a scandal with Ivy and uh, gambling. Uh, yeah, like the cheating in the casino. Yeah. The other interesting thing with, the thing with poker is entertaining people. The things that pe- people think, like when I was watching a lot of poker, everybody was impressed with Dan Negreanu because he could say what the other person's hand was. But as you would know, and I guess I also know a lot because I was a lot more than I did two months ago because I hung out with our mutual friend Olivier uh, and he was, I watched him play and he was explaining kind of the importance of putting people on a range of hands. So the Negreanu strategy of knowing that the person has ace queen or whatever, which so impressed people is just not the way to play poker. Although once in a while, once in a while, the thing is it narrows as the hand goes down. When Daniel, first of all, he's usually playing against amateurs who are obviously have more predictable ranges. And then a lot of the time where he's calling it a specific hand, it would be in a potentially like a three bet pot, which basically means that there was a raise before um, the flop came out. And that also narrows people ranges down more. So it's kind of like a magician's trick. And then also as people, as the hand goes on from the flop to the turn the river, like the number of hands that people have narrow and narrow and narrow. So the chances that, you know, Daniel Negrano would be right um, against an amateur whose range has been narrowed on four different occasions of betting, they just go way up that he's right. But on those shows, they'd always love like Chris Moneymaker or, you know, Farhi, what was it, Sam Farhi or whatever. They, the, these winners would be like, must have kings pre-flop. Like they'd fold, they go, you must have kings. And that's just terrible poker to put someone pre-flop on one particular hand, but occasionally we get lucky and then everyone will watch it and be like, well, I want to try to do that. And narrowing people down that extreme early in the hand has to be a mistake. Oh yeah, and that has a lot of in common with uh, the replication crisis. Cause you're right, when it happens, people are like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And it creates this very strong memory and this buzz, right? Yeah. But then if you actually look at the data, you have to ask, wait, well, are they able to do this like consistently or are we only like remembering the time that it was so awesome? Olivier Bousquet, by the way, who came on the grid recently as well, was he playing online? Yeah, he's playing online. I see. So you were watching him play online poker. Very cool. Yeah, he was describing, he was like explaining what he was doing. And it was really interesting. He told me how much the game had advanced since I was following it, which I hadn't realized. Yeah, well, certainly online, it's definitely a different game where data is even more important, of course, than uh, the live game where it is true that occasionally you should trust your gut. That's the thing. I love the title of your book, but in poker, it's all about whether or not you are too much of a field player, then you need to be told, don't trust your gut. Whereas if you never trust your gut, then you need to be told to trust it more often. I mean, that's, uh, to be fair, as a book author, you know that publishers like catchy titles uh, that don't always fully capture everything you're trying to say in the book. Uh, When I was writing Don't Trust Your Gut, the working title was You Know Less Than You Think. And then the publisher really liked the title don't trust your gut which isn't fully what my book is about it's more like here's some cool data on how the world works that you might not have known that could be useful and help you make decisions everyone wants something provocative and by saying don't trust your gut it's kind of like i'm going against the malcolm gladwell blank always use your intuition so i think uh people like that it kind of gets a little buzz oh yeah absolutely i love it but i like that long title you just mentioned um here's some data and some of it will be useful to your life <laughs> and some of it will be really obvious actually you had a new york times article that 
I noticed was so controversial that it even started popping out at me from my poker followers. Like everybody was talking about your New York Times article that was actually an excerpt in your book. Yeah. And in that you put some very obvious findings and you put some some non-obvious findings. And I really like that because I think that does do what we often don't see in the mainstream media as non-scientists. We don't see the the kind of like the boring studies that just show what was it something about, you know, like that people are a little happier when they have sex and when it's 80 degrees. Yeah. Generally, the findings on happiness, there are some, a couple exceptions. Uh, computer games are surprisingly lead to less happiness than I would have guessed. And there are some fun studies with some counterintuitive results. But the overall happiness research, I think, is somewhat obvious uh, that I, I sum up all of happiness research in one sentence. I think it all converges on be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. Uh, like sex is the happiest activity. 80 degrees and sunny is the happiest weather. Uh, being with your romantic partners, the most joyous activity. Uh, being by a beach or by a body of water is the most happy location. So it's, it's all these things that kind of are obvious, but I kind of argued in the piece in my book that there's profundity in the obviousness of the data. Uh, because a lot of uh, a lot of us don't follow these obvious findings. You're absolutely right that I like kind of mixing obvious and not obvious things. Every time the obvious our obvious guess was wrong, we could just do the opposite of our obvious guess. And if every time our obvious guess was right, we could just do our obvious guess. But the point that sometimes it's our obvious guess is right and sometimes our obvious guess is wrong means we basically always have to check the data to kind of see if we're on the see if our intuition is right, which is kind of the point of the book and. There's an instinct in nonfiction writing, and you know this. This goes to the replication crisis to always be blowing people away and surprising people and shocking people. And I really tried in writing my book not to to fall for that trap and to really try to just give the best evidence we have, even if sometimes it's not. Uh, it is obvious. Just always present the data and just let people know what the data says on any topic. But that ironically got you a lot more attention, some of it negative, because people were like, why is this Harvard bestselling economist slash author telling us that like owning capital is going to make us more likely to be rich or that like <laughs> good weather is going to make us happy? I think, I mean, personally, knowing you in person, I do think that your your humor is like is like super dry and maybe some people didn't get it. How did you take the criticism? Sometimes I don't like to admit this. I would I would like to say I don't care. If someone's really going to spend all day looking up my family background and posting it on Twitter, as some people did, I'm like, hey, I'm the winner here because you're wasting your day looking into my family history or whatever. But I can be very sensitive and shy. So a lot of it is when you write a whole book and you write an op-ed, there are going to be sentences that you just kind of screw up a little bit. Like there's no getting around it. A lot of my, uh, you know, sometimes I'll read my Amazon reviews, my Goodreads reviews for everybody lies or don't trust your gut. And someone will give me, you know, one star, two stars, and they'll point out a stupid sentence I wrote. And they'll be like, and can you believe Seth wrote this? And they'll, you know, put the sentence and I'll go, yeah, that was a really dumb sentence. I can't lie. That was a horrible sentence. And if you write as many sentences as there are in a book, uh, you're going to sometimes write a stupid sentence. There's no way to avoid that. The op-ed that I wrote, I think I just was a little inartful in what I was trying to say. I think people people misunderstood what I found surprising. It was just an inartful paragraph that led to me, myself as well. I'm opening Twitter. And I'm just like seeing Harvard PhD doesn't know the basics of the economy. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. 
I wish I could just say I shook it off really easily, but I did log off Twitter. And actually I talked to my New York Times editor, Aaron, who I'm really good friends with. I'm like, this is really kind of getting under my skin a little bit. And he's like, you know what to do. Follow your advice. That'll cheer you up. He's like, get off social media, which makes people miserable and take a walk by the water. So when I was going a little bit viral, I'm like, okay, I'm going to just close Twitter and uh, take a walk by the water. And that did definitely cheer me up. Yeah. And well, it's also been like 80 degrees for like the last month. So you yeah. were able to take that advice as well. And then I, I'm hoping you also were able to um, have sex with your girlfriend too. <laughs> that did make the evening go better. Obviously, I feel the same way about my books. If you take one sentence and you just like stick it out there, like sometimes it just looks so horrible. It reads terribly. You're right. Like part of that is taking it out of context. But then part of it is like, oh, yeah, you know, there's so many sentences in a book. And you kind of need to evaluate them in different ways. I also think that in your case, and I, I notice this, that people get put into categories. And if you're not seen as like a humor writer, a lot of times your sarcasm doesn't go over that well. In a full length book, it's kind of obvious. But like, I think that sometimes, like sometimes I'll write a tw tweet because I'm not known as like a humorist. And I'll sometimes write a sarcastic tweet and people just won't believe it's supposed to be funny. There are also these studies that the percent of time someone understands that we're being sarcastic is shockingly low, uh, particularly when you're writing. When you're speaking, it's a little bit higher because you can use tone. Uh -huh. When you're writing, it's surprisingly low. I think obviously my ending the, you know, my, my book and my op-ed with that data-driven answer to life is to have sex on a beach. There's definitely some sarcasm in that. It, it's not pure sarcasm because I think there's something profound in the obviousness of the data on happiness and the fact that these simple, obvious things make us happy. I think I did want, I did seriously want to point that out, but you know, people are like, well, you know, I need to, I need to have a job. I can't, what are you saying? I do just like go and have sex on my be the beach for the rest of my life. Like, you know, there's more to life than that. And what about meaning and purpose? And, and these questions that I think are very, very important. I wasn't literally suggesting that you spend the rest of your life on a beach having sex all the time. <laughs> if people took that entirely seriously, that was a mystery. And I never heard of those studies of sarcasm, but it, it oh, is yeah. interesting because I, I, in my book, there's a part actually about sex where I mention that um, the wisdom on the chess circuit is that women can have sex during tournaments and it increases their performance. But if men have sex during chess tournaments, they get depleted. And then I, I wrote something like only a rigorous um, study could test this theory. And of course, it was supposed to be like a joke, like, of course, like, like a little bit of gossip, like, but mostly a joke. But some people did take that seriously, too. They were like, why is she using like hearsay to explain like why women are better than men? <laughs> Someone actually responded to when I said when I offered, you know, my great wisdom on happiness to have sex on a beach on an 80 degree day. Someone responded. And I, I, I don't know if she was being sarcastic. She's like, this isn't causal evidence of his test in a randomized controlled trial. I think she was being sarcastic. And then someone responded, who I'm sure was being sarcastic. She goes, uh, can I sign up for the trial? And she goes, it seems a lot more fun than testing uh, whether a parachute works in skydiving or something. So it was pretty funny. Where do you think poker lies in the happiness chart? Because it could go, it, poker is kind of like a synthesis type of activity um, where it could go into so many different categories. It could go into gambling, if that's how you approach it. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, not the approach I would recommend unless you have like a bottomless pit of money and really enjoy it. Or it could go under socializing with friends for sure. And it could also go under puzzles or games. And if you're playing online, it could go under video games. 
it's a bit of a tough to pin down on the happiness scale, I'd say. It's tough. It's interesting though. So the happiness project, uh, the mappiness project, you know, I include my book, they have four, 40 activities and they rank them all in happiness. And I just include the entire chart for people to see. And then with my friend Spencer, who I think, yeah, you know, Spencer. Yes, I do. We did this study where we just asked people to kind of predict what the chart would look like. Uh, so what do you think? Rank all these activities based on how much happiness you guess people would get. And again, one of my, the main points of happiness research is that the findings are somewhat obvious. So people were pretty close. The, you know, the R squared on the guesses and the actual happiness was pretty high. People guessed that sex would give you a lot of happiness and being sick in bed would make people miserable and waiting on a line would make people miserable, whereas socializing with friends would make people happy. But there were some biases and gambling and alcohol, if I remember correctly, I'm, I'm almost positive were two underrated activities, which I found very surprising that people thought they'd give people less happiness than they actually gave them. I don't know what to make of that. Maybe there's social desirability. There's so much negative press around those activities because for good reason, there are warnings around gambling and alcohol and the addiction they would cause it because they have so much negative press. People assumed they'd give people pretty low activity, but then in the moment uh, when people are drinking or gambling, they rank pretty high. I don't know. My guess is that poker actually does pretty well. A lot of the things that poker brings together rank pretty high in the happiness activity chart. Yeah, socializing, socializing, and... drinking, gambling, maybe the better ones are those poker tournaments, where they're by the beach in like a, the Caribbean or whatever, those would rank really high, probably. Poker stars, players championships. Yeah, yeah, I love working out. That's like one of my favorite things to do. There's sometimes research that shows it doesn't help with weight loss or fitness because you eat back what you worked out, blah, blah, yeah. blah. I'm like, whatever. This is like the funnest part of my day. So yeah, that ranked very high as well. And that's also, they've also done studies right before people exercise. They ask people to estimate how happy they'll be when they're actually exercising. And then while they're exercising, they ask them how happy they are. And unlike you, most people don't realize how happy they tend to be when exercising, that they underestimate. They consistently underestimate. They say they're going to be a seven out of 10. And then when they're actually exercising, they're an eight out of 10. Exercise is a pretty good path to mood boosts and being moving, being out and about, being with friends. What for the research of this book made you the happiest? What caused the biggest change in your own life or happiness? Well, you met your girlfriend partly because of the volume approach to dating. That probably was the biggest improvement. I was perpetually single. I kind of thought I just liked being single. There, there's another misconception on happiness. There's a big boost by being around other people. And one of the interesting things is they've broken this down by introverts and extroverts. And introverts and extroverts get just as big a boost when they're around other people, even though a lot of introverts don't think they're going to get a boost. And I think I was in the category, I'm like a 99.9 percentile introvert. So I was in the category, I'm like, I, you know, I like being by myself, just reading, writing, doing my research. And I think that kind of uh, allowed me to be perpetually single and thinking that was okay, an okay way to go through life. And combined with some insecurity I talked about uh, in the in my dating life that led me to not ask people out very often. <laughs> and uh, I did change that in the course of writing this book. And that's definitely been a big improvement in my mood. And I would say two other things, I forced myself to do things more than I used to. So the activities that people tend to underestimate happiness, except for, you know, gambling and alcohol are kind of a little weird, but I, I guess even those, but a lot of things that take a little energy to get started, tend to uh, 
do really well when you're in the moment, you ask them, how happy are you? And people, when they're, you know, the top activities, you know, sex, uh, exercise, sports, going to a museum, going to a show, hunting and fishing, bird watching, nature watching, gardening, they rank very high and things that rank very low, particularly of leisure activities, social media, browsing the internet, resting, relaxing. I think there's a trap that we all can fall into of thinking that doing nothing is a path to happiness and it's really not. So anytime you have that feeling of, oh, I, you know, yeah, my friend invited me to go karaoke. Oh yeah, karaoke does very well, uh, singing and performing. Uh, you know, my friends invite me to karaoke, but I really want to lie on a couch on the couch and watch Netflix tonight. That's a dangerous trap. And I do that a lot less than before I wrote this book because I found that research very convincing. So now I really fi- try to force myself to lean into social activity and in a way I didn't. And then I do spend more time in nature as well. So, so those are pretty big changes, I would say. Yeah, I think one that you didn't mention is um, museums and libraries and exhibitions do extremely well. Yeah, that surprised me. Yeah, so you could like go to a museum and go to like the park nearby it after and have like the greatest day ever. Of course, on the 80 degree weather with a boat ride afterwards, having <laughs> sex. But yes, this has been a really great interview, Seth. Um, thank you so much uh, for, for taking the time. Your level of poker understanding is pretty high for somebody who doesn't play seriously, but Seeing that your brother was a pro and you're friends with me and Olivier, it, it kind of makes sense. I guess um, next time you'll be ready to get in a game. Yeah, for sure. Maybe I can see if the learnings of happiness and dating and luck make me a better poker player, but I'm pretty skeptical. <laughs> we'll see. And obviously we can buy your book anywhere. Is there any favorite place that you have for people to buy it? Amazon's fine. People say local bookstores do better on ratings. And it's probably better to support them. But then so many people buy books from Amazon now that if you buy it on Amazon and the rank's a little higher or you leave a review, then you actually probably help more because the algorithms show it more. I don't know. You help you more. Yes, that is true. But you know what you can do? You can buy it at an independent bookstore and then review it on Amazon on anyway. Amazon, right, right. That's the real like advantage play. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Don't trust your gut. Really? Well, maybe once in a while. <laughs> Seb Stevens Dewitwich on the grid. Thank you so much for joining me and to everyone for listening. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by Poker Stars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.